0: Hello and welcome to episode number 285 of the Daily Knowledge Podcast from TodayIFoundOut.com. In the episode today, we're talking about why the moon looks so big when it's on the horizon but so small when it's up in the sky, then we're going to have a word from one of our fantastic sponsors, Downpour, and then there's going to be a bonus why article about why lead used to be added to gasoline. So let's just get started with today's show. The question of why the moon looks bigger on the horizon than when it's high in the sky has been debated for several thousand years. One popular myth, dating all the way back to Aristotle in the 4th century BC and which still endures somewhat today, is that it is simply a case of magnification caused by the Earth's atmosphere. While a magnification effect is taking place, it actually is going the other way and is more of a compression. Atmospheric refraction causes the moon to appear slightly smaller in the vertical axis when it is near the horizon versus when it is high in the sky. This refraction, combined with the fact that the moon is about 4,000 miles further away when it is on the horizon, causes it to appear 1.5% smaller if you were to measure very precisely its apparent size on the horizon versus higher in the sky. So if it's not magnification from the Earth's atmosphere, what is going on here? In short, the moon appearing bigger near the horizon is nothing more than an optical illusion. It's really as simple as that. You can verify this by taking a pair of calipers, or even just a ruler, and measuring the diameter of the moon on the horizon. Later that night, when it is higher in the sky, measure it again. Be sure to hold the measuring device at the same distance away from your eyes each time to get accurate results. If you do it precisely enough, you'll find that it will actually measure about the same size both times, despite appearing nearly twice as big to your brain when it's on the horizon. Exactly what is going on in our brains to cause this optical illusion is still somewhat up for debate, but it seems to center around size consistency, where our brains are trying to grapple with the size of an object versus how far away it thinks it is. For instance, when you see people very far away from you and their heads look incredibly tiny, your brain doesn't think for an instant that the people and their heads are actually tiny. Your brain adjusts your perception based on what else is in your vision to gather that third dimension of depth. Something of this same effect is thought to be happening with the moon, only this time your brain is getting tricked into thinking that the moon is farther away when it is on the horizon, making it appear bigger to you. This is known as a Ponzo illusion, named after Italian psychologist Mario Ponzo. Mario Ponzo first demonstrated the Ponzo illusion in 1913. In his experiment, Ponzo drew two converging vertical lines on a piece of paper. He then drew two horizontal lines, crossing these lines, one at the top and one at the bottom. These two horizontal lines are the same length, but it appears that the top one is much longer because it looks farther away. You can see an image of this in the show notes for today's episode. This is due to our brains interpreting the two converging lines as parallel lines that only appear to be converging because they are getting farther away. Thus, if both horizontal lines are making the same length imprint on our eyes, but one is farther away, then the one that is farther away must be much larger, so our brains perceive it as larger than it actually is. So, in the end, it's a matter of our brains getting tricked in terms of the distance from the moon to us when it's on the horizon versus high in the sky. When it's on the horizon, the brain has reference points to compare and judge the distance, and similarly adjust the apparent size based on that perceived distance. When it is high in the sky, there is nothing useful to compare it to, so the apparent size changes based on how far away our brain thinks it is at that point, namely thinking that it is closer to us high in the sky and farther away on the horizon. So just before we get into that bonus why article, I'd like to say that this episode is brought to you by Downpour.com. Downpour is a site for DRM-free audiobooks, and you can get them for up to 70% off the retail price. Basically, if you go to Downpour.com and enter the promo code DAILY, you can get an audiobook rental for just $3.95. And today I would like to recommend a great book called Bad Science, It's written by a chap called Ben Goldacre, and basically it kind of looks at this epidemic of pseudoscience science that's going on, and gives listeners the tools they need to distinguish good science from bad science, hence the name of the book. And what's cool is once you've got that book for $3.95, by entering the promo code DAILY at Downpour.com, you'll be able to listen to that book whether you are online or offline. Unlike a lot of audiobook streaming services, with Downpour, you can download it and listen to it even when you don't have uh, an internet connection. So it's a really great way to get started with audiobooks. Head over to Downpour.com, enter the promo code DAILY, and you'll get your first rental for just $3.95. And a big thank you to Downpour.com for sponsoring the show. Why Lead Used to be Added to Gasoline Tetraethyl lead was used in early model cars to help reduce engine knocking, boost octane ratings and help with wear and tear on valve seals within the motor. Due to concerns over air pollution and health risks, this type of gas was slowly phased out during the late 1970s and banned altogether in all on-road vehicles in the US in 1995. For a more detailed explanation of why lead used to be added to gasoline, it's necessary to understand a little bit more about gasoline and what properties make it a good combustion material in car engines. Gasoline itself is a product of crude oil that is made of carbon atoms joined together into carbon chains. The different length of chains creates different fuels. For example, methane has one carbon atom, propane has three, and octane has eight carbon atoms chained together. These chains have characteristics that behave differently under various circumstances. Characteristics like boiling point and ignition temperature, for instance, can vary greatly between them. As fuel is compressed in a motor's cylinder, it heats up. Should the fuel reach its ignition temperature during compression, it will auto-ignite at the wrong time. This causes loss of power and damage to the engine. Fuels such as heptane, which has seven carbon atoms chained together, can ignite under very little compression. Octane, however, tends to handle compression extremely well. The higher pressure the cylinders of a car's motor can produce, the greater the power it can get out of each stroke of the piston. This makes it necessary to have fuels that can handle higher compression without auto-igniting. The higher the octane rating, the more compression the fuel can handle. An octane rating of 87 means the fuel is a mixture of 87% octane and 13% heptane, or any mixture of fuels or additives that have the same performance of 87-13. In 1919, Dayton Metal Products Co. merged with General Motors. They formed a research division that set out to solve two problems, the need for high-compression engines and the insufficient supply of fuel that would run them. On the 9th of December 1921, chemists led by Charles F. Kettering and his assistants Thomas Midgley and T.A. Boyd added tetral ether lead to the fuel in a laboratory engine. The ever-present knock caused by auto-ignition of the fuel being compressed past its ignition temperature was completely silenced. Most all automobiles at this time were subject to this engine knock, so the research team was overjoyed. Over time, other manufacturers found that by adding lead to the fuel, they could significantly improve the octane rating of the gas. This allowed them to produce much cheaper grades of fuel and still maintain the needed octane ratings that a car's engine required. Another benefit that became known over time was that tetraethyl lead kept valve seats from being worn down prematurely. Exhaust valves in early model cars that were subject to engine knocking tended to get micro-welds that would get pulled apart on opening. This resulted in rough valve seals and premature failure. Lead helped fuel ignite only when appropriate on the power stroke, thus helping eliminate exhaust valve wear and tear. The potential health issues with tetraethyl lead were known even before the major oil companies began using it. In 1922, while plans for production of leaded gasoline were just getting underway, Thomas Midgley received a letter from Charles Klaus, a German scientist, stating of lead, it's a creeping and malicious poison, and warned that it had killed a fellow scientist. This didn't seem to phase Midgley, who himself came down with lead poisoning during the planning phase. While recovering in Miami, Mitchley wrote to an oil industry engineer that public poisoning was almost impossible as no one will repeatedly get their hands covered in gasoline containing lead. Other opposition to lead came from a lab director for the Public Health Service, a part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, who wrote to the assistant surgeon general stating that lead was a serious menace to public health. Despite the warnings, production on leaded gasoline began in 1923. It didn't take long for workers to begin succumbing to lead poisoning. At DuPont's manufacturing plant in Deepwater, New Jersey, workers began to fall like dominoes. One worker died in the fall of 1923, three died in the summer of 1924, and four more in the winter of 1925. Despite this, public controversy didn't begin until five workers died and 44 were hospitalized in October of 1924 at Standard Oil's plant in Bayway, New Jersey. The Public Health Service held a conference in 1925 to address the problem of leaded gasoline. As you would expect, Kettering testified for the use of lead, stating that oil companies could produce alcohol fuels that had the benefits that were provided by lead. However, the volumes needed to supply a growing, fuel-hungry society could not be met. Alice Hamilton of Harvard University countered proponents of leaded gasoline and testified that this type of fuel was dangerous to people and the environment. In the end the public health service allowed leaded gasoline to remain on the market in 1974 after environmental hazards began to become overwhelmingly apparent the EPA environmental protection agency announced a scheduled phase out of lead content in gasoline one way manufacturers met these other emission standards was to use catalytic converters Catalytic converters use a chemical reaction to change pollutants, like carbon monoxide and other harmful hydrocarbons, to carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and water. Tetraethyl lead would tend to clog up these converters, making them inoperable, thus unleaded gasoline became the fuel of choice for any car with a catalytic converter. The requirements by the EPA, emission control mechanisms on cars, and the advent of other octane-boosting alternatives spelled the end for widespread leaded gasoline use. Manufacturers soon found that cars could no longer handle such a fuel, public tolerance of the environmental and health hazards would not allow it, and it became cost-prohibitive to continue producing it. On the 1st of January 1996, the Clean Air Act completely banned the use of leaded fuel for any on-road vehicle. Should you be found to possess leaded gasoline in your car, you can be subject to a $10,000 fine. This hasn't completely got rid of leaded gasoline. You are still permitted to use it for off-road vehicles, aircraft, racing cars, farm equipment and marine engines in the United States. Bonus Fact Since the reduction of leaded gas in the United States, the average level of lead in the blood of Americans has decreased by over 75%.